I truly want to be the dumbest person in the room. One of the traits of a great CEO, in my opinion, is to be humble enough to know what you don't know, but still be agile enough to be able to learn very efficiently. Just be extremely well aligned when you get in front of the board. It's okay to have one-on-ones with key investors or independent board members offline. And to me, actually, if you really want valuable advice from the board, get them offline. For the majority of CEOs and executives, firing somebody is very uncomfortable, as it should be. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon, managing partner at GGV Capital. On this episode, I'm joined by my good friend, Crystal Huang, as guest host. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. Also, check out Founder Real Talk past episodes, including Stuart Butterfield from Slack, Sarah Fryer from Square, Nate Blacharzik from Airbnb, and many others. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. Also, I want to tell you about our sister podcast, 996, a bi-weekly show on tech entrepreneurship in China hosted by my fellow managing partner at GGV Capital, Hans Tung, and our colleague, Zara Zhang. In the show, they interview movers and shakers of China's tech industry, as well as tech leaders with a U.S.-China cross-border perspective. It's a fantastic show, and I've learned a ton from these interviews. You can take a listen by searching for 996 in any podcast app. Without further ado, here's today's episode. On the show today, we have Barmak Mefta, president and CEO of Alien Vault. Barmak has had a distinguished career in software and security. After several years at Oracle, he was the 10th employee at Fortify Software, where he served as chief product officer. He led the expansion of the company before it was acquired by HP in 2010 for several hundred million dollars. At HP, Barmak served as the VP of Enterprise Security Division before becoming the CEO of Alien Vault in 2011. As you may have read recently, it was announced that Alien Vault would be acquired by AT&T. Terms of the acquisition have not been disclosed, but as shareholders, we're very excited about this outcome. We first met Barmak in 2012 just as the company was transitioning from a top-down selling motion to more of a bottoms-up. And we explored that in this conversation. You'll find it really interesting. We fell in love with the company, and we led the 2013 financing round, and I've been on Barmac's board ever since. Today's discussion was fantastic. Barmac's thoughtful, candid, and he confronts challenges head-on. So this podcast is full of wisdom. Barmac, welcome to Founder Real Talk. We're excited to have you. Please give us a quick version of what Alien Vault does. Thanks, Glenn. Thanks, Crystal. Appreciate you guys having me. Alien Vault provides a unified security management platform to essentially achieve threat detection, incident response, and threat intelligence. Although today the company sells to every company of any size, down from big enterprises to mid-market companies, small to medium-sized businesses, and also through managed security service providers, which has become one of our biggest go-to-market threads as a channel ecosystem, we initially started selling to mid-market companies, which I can get a little bit more into. But basically, the gist of what we do is provide an orchestrated platform that has a lot of point products pre-integrated and pre-orchestrated on that platform that essentially allows the end user to achieve threat detection in a very affordable and simple way. 
The first topic we wanted to cover with you today was your decision to uh, transition the company from you know traditional outbound-driven enterprise sales to more of a high-velocity inbound-driven sales model. Tell us why you decided to make that change. It must have been hard. So one of the hardest things for any entrepreneur or CEO that I found is resist the temptation to innovate first and then find an addressable market that fits the innovation that you've already put in place. I've always been a big believer that you want to work your way backward from the persona that you're selling to, from the addressable market and the market segment you're selling to, and then ideally find a very acute problem and a very hot problem for that persona to go solve. And so one of the things that we found out with Alien Vault early on was from a product market fit that mid-market companies, and we basically characterize mid-market companies of companies of any size that didn't have the same maturity expertise or the affordability from an information security perspective that uh, the Fortune 500 had. We identified that segment of the market to be very appealing for the type of product that we built. Soon after, we discovered that if we have aspirations to go after that segment of the market, uh, that segment of the market, because of lack of affordability, couldn't write big checks for us, and thus we had to bring the cost of acquisition of that customer uh, down. You couldn't, you couldn't afford to get 10, 20,000 customers with a traditional outbound high-touch model that you typically do when you sell to Fortune 500 companies with much higher average selling prices. And so when we first entered the company, the company had a small SWAT team of enterprise reps. You know, We had a demand-gen model that was very outbound-driven. And one of the hardest things that I had to do was essentially change that model in its entirety. But looking back at it, this is about six years, a little over six years now, was probably the best decision we ever made because had we not made that change, we couldn't get the economics of the business such that we could attract 10,000, 20,000 customers, a lot of channel partners at the same time. So that inbound high-velocity engine driven with a lot of inside sales reps and bringing that acquisition dollar lower and lower was very, very essential for our existence. So this this high-velocity selling model is a pretty new thing, and it's not something you personally had a lot of experience with before you got to Alien Vault. How did you inject that new DNA into the company? Did you have to go out and hire people? And if so, what were you looking for? And what was that process like, that transition of the team? Yeah, that actually brings up a broader question, which is how do you attract the right team around you? So I've been a big believer, and this is probably something that every CEO is going to say, but I truly live it, which is I, I truly want to be the dumbest person in the room. You know, My whole philosophy has been hire a team around me that has run the game that we want to play many times over. And as Glenn, you articulated, you know, my entire background has been enterprise selling. If you look at my background at Fortify, at HP, at Oracle, these are co- companies that sort of epitomize selling into the Fortune 500. And their selling model and their demand gen model is very high touch. And so when we first decided that we have to invert this model and make it inbound, inside sales driven, uh, I had no idea where to start. In fact, uh, a little joke, I, I had no idea that there's companies out there outside of Wells Fargo Bank and Goldman Sachs and Citigroup. And so my, my entire aperture to the market was there's only four or 500 companies that buy IT or IT security. And I remember uh, sitting down with our Series C lead investor, Techline, in his office once. And this was probably about five months after I joined. And Ted said, he said, man, you've got you've to go find yourself a go-to-market team that has lived and played that go-to-market model over and over again. And so this is a true story. I was sitting home. I didn't know where to look. I basically went on the internet and started searching you know, high-velocity, inbound demand gen. And, and that's sort of 
how I encountered the team that we found in Austin. And so we brought in a team uh, from a very su- successful company called SolarWinds. They were some of the early executives in SolarWinds, uh, running marketing, running online demand generation, uh, sales, and we managed to attract them to join the company. This goes back probably about five years, two, three months ago. And that's when we basically reinstituted the in-band demand gen model, the insights sales model, and that team essentially helped us quite a bit uh, get in that space. And of course, through the course of the last five and a half years, I've learned so much about all sorts of go-to-market models, whether it be indirect channel, whether it be direct high-touch the enterprise, whether it be inbound demand gen, followed by ISR selling into the SME, SMBs and mid-market. It's been, it's been an amazing experience for me. How did you go about uh, changing the metrics you were tracking and you know realigning the organization to these these new KPIs and this new model? You know, I learned a lot from the team that we hired, and one of the traits of a great CEO, in my opinion, is to be humble enough to know what you don't know, but still be agile enough to be able to learn very very efficiently. And so, as you might imagine, Crystal. You know, in qualitative selling, which is if you're selling to big global financial services companies, federal intelligence agencies, federal DOD, the instrumentation of the business is not as important because the average selling prices are so high that typically you look at the growth in the top line and overall how much you're spending to get that into the business. When you're talking about high velocity selling, the economics of each deal is going to mean a ton. And so there was just an enormous amount of instrumentation around funnel metrics, uh, how many leads convert to opportunities, how many opportunities convert to deals, how much money we're spending. Uh, there's this old sort of LTV to CAC ratios, which is sort of how, how much are we spending to acquire the customer? What can we assume from the lifetime value of the customer? That become really, really essential, partly because you're dealing with extremely high volumes of customer acquisition and subsequently attrition, customer retention. And so there's just an amazing amount of instrumentation you have to put in place for the front half of the company. And for me, that was something I learned from the team that we'd hired, uh, something I didn't know from the past. And you know, within two quarters, three quarters, I had to sort of sink or swim, and we jumped in and we learned pretty quickly. Do you have any advice for founders who are going through something similar and trying to figure out how to change their go-to-market model? I do. And again, it sort of goes back to what I said before, which is, you know, again, as tech people, remember my background, I sort of grew up in the PM world. So I, you know, I was the head of products for one of the core products at Oracle. You know, when I left Oracle, I was the head of products for Fortify Software. You know, when, when we joined HP, I was running for all intents and purposes. When they call somebody a GM, you're essentially running the engineering teams, the PM and PMM teams, et cetera. So as an engineer by training and a PM by training, it's really hard to train yourself to think like the end user does. And oftentimes entrepreneurs don't. And to me, that's the biggest mistake. And so my advice to entrepreneurs and founders and CEOs is something really simple, which is you know go find a, a really acute problem for a specific persona in a very concrete addressable market and ensure that that addressable market is big enough that you can swim in that TAM and, and still be able to grow and then work your way back into how can you solve that acute problem for that persona. And the other advice that I would give is rapidly iterate through good enough. So build something in a very quick fashion that you can give to the hands of the first 10 adopters, 20 adopters, and through that rapid iteration with those early adopters, learn from them in terms of what they actually need. Uh, Because often, uh, as smart as we are, our hypotheses might not actually be corroborated by who we're trying to solve that problem for. 
And the sooner we can get a good enough product in the hands of that persona and rapidly iterate through that, the better uh, product market fit uh, sort of emerges over time. That really resonates with me. Uh, story from my background, an investor in Zendesk uh, several years ago. And Zendesk, as, as you guys know, is really one of the early pioneers in the inbound, higher velocity type model. I remember having a conversation with uh, Adrian McDermott, the guy who runs product at Zendesk, and asked him about his role in the business model. And the way he thought about it, which I, to me made a lot of sense, was that really if you're going to run this model successfully, every piece of the business has to work together. Marketing has to do their job. Sales has to be ready to handle lots of inbound leads. But if the product doesn't sell itself and make it very easy to work with, easy to demonstrate, quick value, then no matter how good your front end is, you're going to fail. So as you were making this transition, how did you manage to make sure the product was going to run along the journey with you? It's a great point, Glenn. And I was fortunate enough to have a CTO alongside me. Uh, he's been my business partner for a long time, and we know each other. And the great thing about our CTO is he's worked for companies as a consultant and as an executive that span the gamut of very custom enterprise selling all the way to mid-market com- companies, all the way to even business-to-consumer-oriented companies. And so his affinity for the type of go-to-market that we wanted to put in place and the importance of the alignment of product marketing and sales, exactly like you articulated, was extremely high. So, in fact, I would give him credit as one of the first architects to think through that that addressable market was the addressable market we wanted to go after. So he had a huge enthusiasm to make the product really easy to use because, to your point, Glenn, you you really can't have a high-velocity engine if you don't have a frictionless product, if the product requires a ton of services, if the product requires a ton of customization for the customer or for the channel uh, partner, there's no way that you can attract the initial SQL, the, the initial lead, the initial opportunity through a freemium type cell. And so the attributes of that product from an ease of use, time to value, is as important as the features and the strength of the product uh, being offered. And in fact, I would argue, our current go-to-market model, even in the enterprise segment, I mean, we do a huge amount of deals every quarter that are north of $300,000, $400,000 in ACV. And these deals are still driven, interestingly enough, from a technical buy-in from the tech buyer. So we, we actually don't go talk to the CISO or the CIO of the company first, start an elongated proof of concept or evaluation, wait nine, 10 months, and uh, go through that eval period. The way we do evaluation is we let the technical buyer put themselves through the eval because the product is so easy and because time to value in that product is so important. And once they go through that evaluation phase and become an SQL to us, you know, our average selling cycles are about 61 days from opportunity to create to time to close. And a key attribute of that is the simplicity, the integrity, the elegance of what the engineering is, is doing basically to put that product together. So that alignment between product marketing and sales is absolutely critical if you want to do a high-velocity engine. It reminds me, when we were in due diligence on you guys back in 2013, and you'd show me a pipeline, we saw on the pipeline that Pandora was a prospect, and Pandora was a GGV portfolio company. That's right. uh, I called the CTO at the time, and at the time, Pandora had you know 50 million or so active users, so they had credentials on tens of millions of people. They had millions and millions of credit cards on file. Uh, so lots of information that if bad guys got access to would be really damaging to the company. 
And I remember calling the CTO saying, hey, by the way, I see that Alien Vault is uh, a company I'm, we're looking at is has you guys on their pipeline. Are you evaluating this product? And he said, oh yeah, I've actually, yeah, we are evaluating that product. I said, well, you know, who are the security team? I actually have never talked to the security team here at Pandora. And who are they? And he said, well, we don't have anybody. We don't have any security professionals. Even though this was, you know, a mid-market company, but with several billion dollars market cap at the time and a lot to lose, they didn't really have a security team. And I don't think they're different or unique than lots of other companies. So must have been quite the transition for you guys to and, and for you personally to be you know, transition from selling to big banks who've got armies of security people going to mid-market companies who recognize the need of the product but really didn't have the sophistication. So testament to you guys to have built a product that really works for them. I appreciate it, and it's been an incredible experience for us. And again, just going through this experience, for me, I mean, again, the number of go-to-market models that I've seen in my entire life, it sort of spans the gamut of you know, top-down, mid-market, channel. It's, it's, it's just been an extraordinary experience. Let's talk about how you manage your business. You operate today in several centers. You referenced that you hired a team out of Austin. You've got, you've got a big team in Austin. You've got a team here locally in Silicon Valley. You also have a team in Spain. How'd you end up with that kind of configuration? And it, kinda, it seems like it must be challenging as CEO to run an operation that dispersed. What's the hardest part of managing a distributed team like that? Yeah, it's interesting. Our journey is one of, um, we ended up with those geographies not by choice, but by happenstance. And so the way it worked out is AlienVault was a company that actually was founded in Spain initially. And so our roots go back to late 2007, early 2008 when the company was founded. And it was not until mid-2011 when the two Spanish founders had the foresight to say we have to move headquarters here to the U.S. And so this is a very unique company in that the typical tech company starts somewhere here in the U.K. or one of these sort of uh, big uh, high-tech centers. And then from there, you sort of expand globally. We actually started the other way around. We started in Spain, and we brought headquarters to the U.S. And so we didn't have a choice but to keep the engineering team. There were great engineers that we had. We still have them uh, on board in Spain but then start the sales and marketing and sort of the initial go-to-market threats here in the U.S. And uh, so San Mateo became our headquarters in the U.S. Spain, of course, was our engineering team. And at the time, that was really the only two groups we had. About seven months into our journey, we decided to be a high-velocity company. So as I was mentioning, we were trying to look for the best team we could find, which just so happened that that best team was in Austin. And uh, we had to build a team around that. And so uh, when we hired our CMO, when we hired our initial head of sales our head of online demand, et cetera, they were all in Austin. And it turned out that that group started expanding. In fact, the number of employees we have in Austin is now beyond the number of employees that we have here in SAM2. So we built that team in Austin. That became essentially our sales and marketing center initially. And our CTO decided to start to build uh, an engineering team in Austin. And that sort of became our core engineering team. And of course, the engineers that we had in Spain augmented that team pretty well. So that was our three centers for a while. And about three years ago, we decided to uh, start selling into EMEA. I mean, we were selling into Spain, but we, we said there's other parts of EU that we wanted to cover. There's Middle East, Africa. And so we set out a search to find out where is the best center to staff up a sales and marketing team, and we settled on Cork, Ireland. In fact, there was a choice between Amsterdam, UK, and, and Cork. Uh, we ended up with Cork for a variety of reasons. And uh, we set up shop there about three years ago, and we've grown that center to about you know, a good-sized team. And so we operate out of four main centers today, which is Spain, Cork, Ireland, uh, Austin, Texas, and San Mateo, which is our headquarters. If I had to tell you 
the challenges associated with having those four locations, there's so many. The, the one that I can't emphasize enough is uh, keeping a culture that is consistent across all geos that you operate in. And, and to me, culture is so essential. And I think culture is essential in any size company, but certainly if you have aspirations to be an IPOable asset, you want to keep that entrepreneurial spirit and entrepreneurial culture for as long as you can. And it's not easy. I mean, it's a lot easier to have all the employees in one office. You can grab them all. You can have these all-hands meetings every week, basically, where you reiterate the culture, the objectives, the mission, the goals for that year. And it's just a lot harder task to do when employees are all around the world, not just from a time perspective, but the frequency by which you can get everybody together. Sometimes I find that employees sort of form their own opinions. So there's a lot of rumors that that sort of spill over. And we just have to be on top of them all the time because often we find these rumors to not be true. It could be a competitor that's trying to poach some of our employees to recruit them. You know, it could be the insecurities and the uncertainties that give birth to those rumors. So anyway, I guess my point is the proactive management of culture and optimism and keeping that entrepreneurial spirit while operating in many geographies is not an easy feat, but, uh, but it's something that we have to do. And, and I think we've done a pretty good job at it. On that note, have you, you know, implemented new, you know, infrastructure or management policies to kind of deal with this distributed team to make sure culture is aligned? To some extent, yeah. So I would probably answer that question on two threads. One is, you know, there's a core set of principles that I abide by, and, and these are the core set of principles that I've had, God, for probably 20 years of, of operating teams. And uh, they're very near and dear to my heart. I think they're very important for the company culture. So the reiteration of those core principles in every company, all hands that we have is uh, extremely essential. And so that's something we do. But beyond that, in terms of technology, in terms of automation, I mean, it's funny, I should say this, up until a year and a half ago, we were operating on sort of 80s style, audio only. You know, God knows we were to run into issues constantly. You know, I would run these all hands meetings every month, and um, God bless our IT team. But you know, they would basically stick a little audio pin on my shirt. It would work half the time; wouldn't work half the time. Sometimes I had to start from scratch because I would be ten minutes into my little speech, and folks in Ireland couldn't hear me. So, and part of it is, you know, we're a very capital efficient company, and so we ran the company with OPEX in mind a lot. And so finally, about a year and a half ago, we decided, okay, it's time, you know, after we surpassed 300 employees, <laughs> that we said it's time to actually invest in audio video. And uh, so we ended up actually with a really good audio video system. And now, you know, when we're sitting in a conference room, everybody else around the world can see us. And the one thing I should mention is don't underestimate the value of video. I think audio is one thing, but, but for people to actually see each other and sort of... Um, feel what everybody's saying, puts everything in context. And that context is really, really important, especially when you're operating in multiple geographies. It's pretty commonplace nowadays that we'll see companies that have distributed teams. Do you think this is even a good trend? And are there some unexpected upsides of that trend? Well, I would say it's a trend that's inevitable. So we could debate the advantages and drawbacks, uh, but it's a global economy now. You know, long gone are the days that you set up shop someplace and, uh, you know, for a long period of time, you just operate out of that geo and you're fine. You're operating global economy, even if you want to set up engineering in one place and you say, I'm just going to run all of engineering in one center. Just from a sales and marketing perspective, 
You just have to be everywhere, right? So from that standpoint, you can't avoid it. And then the only question is, how can you sort of take that into an advantage for yourself? And as opposed to trying to look at it as, God, I got to manage all these centers, you sort of look at it from an expansion perspective and say, how can I use these geographies to give me a lot more reach and a lot more acceleration? And uh, that's something we, we've done, and I think we've done a pretty good job at it. You mentioned that the importance of video, not to underestimate the value that video can bring. I assume big part of that is people just seeing each other, right? And at least at, at GGV, where we're in China and the U.S., what we notice is when you're in the same room, there's, there's really, we, we use video a lot, but there's no replacement for being in the same room. You just had me, you know, a couple months ago at your sales kickoff, where you seemed to, you had a, a whole bunch of the front end part of your team. Do you get your team together from all corners of the globe at all during the year? And what's your sort of cycle of keeping people in the same room and 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 working in sync like that? Right. So certainly once a year at the beginning of the year, we have our SKOs, the sales kickoffs, and it's expensive. And especially when the company gets bigger and bigger, it becomes exponentially more expensive. But we always do this cost-benefit analysis, and we always come to the conclusion that that spend is something that we want to do because you sort of get one shot at it a year, especially for sales, marketing, and the front half of the business. You want to make sure that everybody's aligned, everybody's singing the same tune. They sort of know the corporate objectives and goals for that year. If there's any doubt, any uncertainty, any question that comes up during the sales kickoffs, and, and Glenn, uh, you saw it the two, two and a half days that we ran you know, just the energy and the enthusiasm that that sort of instills in in the front half of the business is huge. And so I think the expense is definitely worth every any of it. On the engineering side, we used to, up until a year ago, do EKOs, which were engineering kickoffs. And because our roots were in Spain, we typically flew everybody to Spain, and we basically had our engineering kickoff in Spain. We started about a year ago doing these mini engineering kickoffs where we do now one in Austin, one in Spain, and then we have some employees in Cork, and so what we do now is me, my CTO, our CRO, sort of a core executive team, will go around the world and then meet with the engineers. And we do a mini version of what we do at the SKO, which is basically expose them to the goals and objectives of the company, answer any questions they might have, just to ensure that in the back half of the business, they sort of are fully aware around what we're doing from a go-to-market perspective. And so they're aligned that way. So we've uh, started to break that out as the company has grown. But, you know, look, if you can afford it, and if you're operating internationally, globally, the more you can all get together in one room, the advantages are huge. Let's shift gears. So you operate in a really dynamic market, and, you know, we've seen you bob and weave quite a bit over the last several years. You know, we talked earlier about your transition from kind of a more traditional top-down selling model to a uh, more bottoms-up, inbound, higher-velocity model where the customer, in many cases, is more of a mid-market uh, rather than enterprise. You've also brought together in your product suite, as you mentioned earlier, historically disparate solutions into one platform. And again, having to make that product experience really smooth and easy for that for that mid-market customer. So that's that's certainly a challenge. And more recently, you've launched a cloud version of your product and really directed, oriented the company around USMA Anywhere, your cloud product. It's a lot to bite off, a lot of change in the last several years. Um, when you look back, you know, do you wish you'd done anything differently, or or was this the path you were ordained to take? And you know, any lessons you can derive from kind of looking backwards now and seeing all the changes you've made? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I should say unconstrained. So if we were given a clean canvas to draw on, and um, we didn't have some of the constraints that we had when we joined, because remember when we joined, the company was already off the ground, mm-hmm. 
And one of the hardest things anybody can do, especially CEO, is make go-to-market changes, make product changes, financial accounting changes while the plane is in flight is extremely difficult. And so if I had to answer that question unconstrained, I would say there were many things that we would start off with doing that we had to do sort of in flight. One is we would definitely start with a cloud form factor and a cloud architected product. I think the trend of going to elastic computing and going to compute sitting somewhere else rather than you having to set up the infrastructure in your own environment is on the ascendancy, and you, you just can't argue against it. And so for any product, I would argue, I mean, unless you're a specialized company that sells into Fed, DOD, or, or certain vertical industries that require a fully on-prem version and they just can't be uh, connected to the internet, I would say a cloud form factor would have been what we would have started with. But we couldn't in Daily Vault because we already had a product. So what we had to do is make that product work as best we could for the addressable market that we want to go after so that we can get some more air under the wing. But at the same time, you know, start a SWAT team in engineering to start working on the alternative path, which was basically the Anywhere product that you're articulating. I think we did a great job at that. The second thing is, of course, if we had to start from scratch, we would identify the target market a lot better. So instead of sort of, again, doing it in flight and finding out that initially going after the big enterprises is not really a home for us for what we do. We would have been a little bit more uh, shrewd around which tar- target market we wanted to sell to. And, and that would have saved us a ton of money so we didn't have to go hire the high-touch team and then sort of re-instrument it around this high-velocity engine that we had. And then the third thing that I just couldn't accentuate more is something you, Glenn, brought up at uh, the board meeting, and, and I should give credit to a couple of other board members, which is you know, when you book business, it's really easy to book business on three-year deals, four-year deals. And sometimes these multi-year deals give you an artificial high, which is you know, you have this sort of growth in the top line that's growing and growing. And then what you find is the gap between those bookings and what actually turns into real value accretion for the company starts growing bigger and bigger. And so one of the things that I would have done initially, and which we finally put in place and it's going great, is sort of comp the reps and comp the behavior, or actually run the behavior of the company on an annualized contract basis, on an ARR basis, because the accretion of value in annual recurring revenue businesses and annual contract value businesses is just exponentially higher than businesses that book three, four-year deals, and uh, there's a little bit of an artificial gap between that. So those would be probably sort of three essential things that I would have done, but you know that's unconstrained. You know, we're handed an asset that was already in flight, and and I think we've done a pretty good job sort of trying to change that asset already in flight and doing pretty well. Going back to validating product market fit, you know, sometimes you know, a team faces resistance from the market and that's, you know, they should actually be pushing hard and running through walls and trying to, um, you know, bend the world to their will. And sometimes they're pursuing the wrong model entirely, right? So what are the signals that would kind of tell you you're on the wrong path and how do you know? One of the traits of being a smart entrepreneur is not having ego and accepting what the market is saying to you. So often, especially as engineers, we have a lot of pride in what we build And your example, Crystal, is spot on, which is we build something, we try it in the market, the market tells you something completely opposite, and yet you sort of keep pushing and pushing and you change a little and you keep pushing. At some point, you have to swim with the waves, not against the waves, right? And ultimately, the person, the channel partner that's signing your check is the authority. And so you have to, at some point, listen to them. 
And my, my philosophy has always been the sooner you keep an open ear to what the market is telling you, the less venture capital dollars you have to spend and uh, the be- better you can drive your engineering teams and your PM teams accordingly. So I'm pretty proud of our team. This is a very senior executive team, a lot more senior than me. And we really don't have any ego other than shareholder value and shareholder success for the company. And so if we hear something in the market that's not something we hypothesized, we immediately make a change. It's hard. It's not easy because you have to be extremely agile. Uh, but that agility is really what gives us the advantage over the big companies, right? I, I always get this question from entrepreneurs and from investors. Hey, you have a competitor in a huge enterprise company. How are you going to compete against that? Because they have all the financial resources and the human capital resources in the world. And the one thing that comes to mind is our ability to adapt to market conditions in a much more efficient way than a huge company would. And I think that's a trait of a great entrepreneur and something uh, I uh, tell every entrepreneur, every aspiring entrepreneur to have. So keep a low ego and you'll raise less venture money. That's what I heard. Okay. And keep your ears open. Hey, I like it. <laughs> yeah. All right. So Barmack, we end uh, every every session with uh, some hot seat questions and you're in the hot seat. You ready? I'm ready. Okay. Tell us about the worst moment you've had in a board meeting. <laughs> There's many examples that come and to if mind. If it involves me, be careful. <laughs> There's probably a couple of examples that come to mind and they revolve around the theme. And that theme is Part of the board meetings is a, a little bit of a Hollywood production of creating content and material so that the board members, you know, because you only get three, three and a half hours in these board meetings, and they typically happen every three months, three and a half months. So you only get so much time with the entire board, and thus you have to be extremely aligned uh, with the executive team and yourself, and that content has to be really spot on in terms of how you present it. So often what I've found is is the really interesting things happen when there is a lack of alignment between the executives and the board members are smart enough to sort of read right into it. And then when they start asking questions, the executives will answer those questions different ways and then that sort of amplifies into, into something that's uh, unwanted. So two examples that come to mind specifically is about a year, year and a half after we joined, we were working on two versions of an operating plan for the subsequent year. And at the time, our head of sales assumed that all the board members knew about Plan B and, and probably assumed that I had told them you know, prior to the board meeting. So he's presenting to the board on Plan B, and one of our board members, not to be named, <laughs> gets really upset. And he goes off on this six-minute, you know, almost to the effect of, is very selfish of you to, to assume that we've already heard that plan and we've approved that plan. And so we have to sort of throttle back, hear the plan for us to prove it, and then you can go with the assumption against it. So that was a very uncomfortable situation. And then uh, just about a year and a half, two years ago, we had our CFO present the board, and um, him and I hadn't aligned really well on the content. And at the end of his presentation, in a very sort of nonchalant way, he throws out, uh, oh, by the way, in about a quarter, we have to do fundraising. <laughs> and uh, so obviously that's a, that's a subject that is uh, very near and dear to the investors' hearts. And so a couple of our investors made a point to me that, look, if we are going to do fundraising, it will just be great to hear it proactively a little bit and sort of plan for it. And of course, we weren't planning on it, so that was a little uncomfortable going through it. But, but anyway, I, I think the theme is just be extremely well-aligned you know, when you get in front of the board. It's okay to have 
one-on-ones with key investors or independent board members offline. And to me, actually, it's interesting, the other advice I have for entrepreneurs is if you really want valuable advice from the board, get them offline. Get them offline and have an hour, hour and a half conversation. That board meeting, although it's really important to have from an administrative perspective, governance is, is really something you have to be aligned well on. What was one of your best hires and why was this person so awesome? There are so many of them we've had, but I would say probably not best hires, but I'd say the most important hires that we had. Obviously, hiring the team in Austin when we decided to make the switch from being an outbound model and a high-touch model to an inbound and high-velocity model was essential to our existence. And so I credit um, you know, our CMO that we managed to recruit about five and a half years ago to come on board as being a really instrumental part of that uh, team. And then just about a year and a half ago, we hired our uh, CRO, our Chief Revenue Officer. And you know, as we were looking to scale the business to hopefully be an IPOable asset uh, sometime soon, there's a lot of scale elements on the front half of the business that you have to take into account. And one of the things that I found out is the alignment between customer experience, customer satisfaction, support, Actually, I would argue demand gen, marketing, and the different go-to-market threads being all part of a field organization is going to be really important. So I was looking for an executive to be able to glue all those key components together and somebody that had the experience and the wherewithal in the past that had ran different models from enterprise to velocity to channel and had a huge amount of affinity for funnel metrics, demand gen, and CX issues. And so we were fortunate enough to find that person. He joined us about um, a year and two months ago, and it's been a great ride with him. So those would probably be key. And of course, you know, I should mention the initial team that came with me from HP. So my C- CTO and I, again, have been business partners for about 18 years. If it wasn't for my CTO, we really wouldn't be here. I mean, a lot of the ideas that we have today in place around the addressable market, the product, et cetera, was really ideas that he put in place. And so those be key hires. Okay, here's another one for you. If you could hit the do-over button in one meeting you had or one decision you made since you've been CEO of Alien Vault, any kind of decision, whether it be about an employee, about a customer, about a product decision, what would it be and why? You know, it would probably be an unpleasant topic, but one that is important, which is to me, the all we do as executives is we hire well, or we should be hiring well. We should empower the hires uh, that we make and sort of clear the road for those hires to go execute. But unfortunately, we should also fire well. So, and I found that uh, for the majority of CEOs and executives, firing somebody it's very uncomfortable as it should be. It's it's not something that's fun. The problem though is whether. You let somebody go because they're not a good fit for the job that you have in mind for them, which has been the case for us a couple of times, not because they're good or bad, but just because they're not a fit, or because from an attitude perspective and culture perspective, they don't fit in. There's been a couple of times where I've doubted myself and I've said, look, you know, if I just wait three months, four months, and if I really work with that individual, the things are going to change. And I got to tell you, this is the other advice that I have for entrepreneurs, which is when you hire, there's the skill access and the attitude access. Ideally, you want to hire somebody to the upper right-hand sort of quadrant of, of those axes. But if you have to sub-optimize on one versus the other, 
I'd rather suboptimize on skill because skill can be acquired, but not suboptimize on core ethics, core principles, and sort of key attitude, uh, attitude parameters, especially at the executive level. Because at the executive level, the amplification factor of a bad attitude and bad culture is going to be really, really important. So anyway, if I had to look back, there, there was a couple times that I just said, I can guess myself, you know, didn't let go of somebody that I should have let go efficiently. And, and that spreads very quickly. And when it spreads, it's a lot harder to obviously do ex post facto. Good thing you can't get rid of your board members so easily. <laughs> Although the board members can get rid of me. <laughs> uh, last question. What's the best book that you'd recommend for entrepreneurs? You know, there are just so many. I mean, obviously, listening to Steve Jobs' podcasts, YouTubes, anything you can find from the guy when it comes to entrepreneurship, it's incredible. I mean, there's not that many individuals out there that have turned around companies a couple times in a row, especially at the size and scale that that guy did. And um, it's just amazing. And he's been a huge aspiration. I mean, I've listened to almost every audio clip, video clip I've, I've found. So from a product market fit Product management, product strategy—it's unbelievable what what he had imagined, and you know he's he's a great guy. But from a book perspective, you know Ben Horowitz has written a book called, um, if I'm not mistaken, it's called "The Hard Thing About Hard Things." And I tell you, you know, as an operating CEO and an operating executives, there are so many amazing sort of operational examples of the realities of life running a company because you know there's there's sort of this academic outcome and people see success and they're like oh it's just so easy everybody can do it you know this guy started a company and after six years had a great ipo and now he's rich but uh, the god's honest truth is the oscillations you'll go through as an entrepreneur i mean the highs are extraordinary and the lows are i can't even begin to tell you how bad they are and your ability as an entrepreneur and a CEO to be able to ride those highs, don't get too excited when things are going great and don't get too dark and morose when things are, aren't going too great. Uh, there's just a ton of examples in that book uh, based on his own experience that I think are just uh, incredibly important for any entrepreneur to read. So that'll be the one book I'd definitely recommend. That's great. Yeah, I love his uh, juxtaposition between CEO in peacetime and CEO in wartime. In wartime, exactly, yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, Barmack, thank you so much for spending time with us. This was absolutely fantastic. Thanks, and uh, looking forward to more great things from Alien Vault in the years to come. Thanks, Glenn. Thanks, Crystal. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. We're produced by Ted Carstensen and his team at HeavyBit. We want to thank Ted for his support. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a multi-stage venture capital firm based in Silicon Valley, Shanghai, and Beijing. We've been partnering with leading technology entrepreneurs since 2000, from seed to pre-IPO. We invest in globally-minded entrepreneurs in consumer internet, e-commerce, frontier tech, and enterprise and have invested in over 300 companies since inception, including the likes of Airbnb, Alibaba, HashiCorp, Opendoor, Slack, Square, Wish, and many others. We're very proud of the 30 companies who've achieved multi-billion dollar valuations to date, and we expect several more in the future. Find out more at ggvc.com.